Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. We are continuing our series that we've called 117. Uh, We picked that up from Isaiah 117, where the prophet Isaiah says that we are to um, learn to do good. We're to cease evil. We are to correct oppression. We are to seek justice. We're to bring justice to the widow and the fatherless. We're to plead um, the orphan's cause. And so we have tried to take seriously the, the many places where the Bible enjoins God's people to be people of righteousness, to be people who indeed seek what is right, seek what is good, not just for ourselves, but for everyone, people who do justice, as it were. And you recall that our our main hope in this series is to really have our own minds renewed by God's Word, so that when we think about this notion of justice, we think Bible. And when we think about this notion of justice, we don't think politics, but discipleship. And we think about this notion of justice, we are attempting to work it out in its biblical shape in the complex matters of life and society today. So we are trying to, in one sense, recover a biblical word and a biblical idea and apply it in our own lives, in our own day. We have argued that the notion of justice, number one, must be God-centered. We are going to seek to be just because God is just. We've argued that our idea of justice needs to be defined primarily by the Bible. We don't live by, word, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And God has said much in the book about justice. We've argued that justice springs in part from the recognition that everyone you've ever met is made in the image and likeness of God. And so justice is merely the outworking of that truth, that we treat people like they are indeed bearing the image and likeness of God. And we have argued that this talk of justice, contrary to what you sometimes see on the blogosphere, is not contrary to the gospel. It grows right up out of the gospel. That justice is one of the fruits that spring from justification. If we have been justified with God through faith in Christ, that works its way out in living a just life in the name of Christ. So this isn't foreign to the faith. This is integral to the faith. And so we worked through those kinds of things in the first half of the series, and now we've come to sort of think about some particular topics and to try and work out those theological principles on these topics. Last week we thought about slavery. This week we want to think about immigration. Let me pray as we turn to that subject. Father, indeed, we can bear no fruit unless we abide in Christ. Lord, everything we attempt will fall to the ground lifeless unless by the power of your Spirit you you breathe life into it. Lord, we dare not attempt to live in this complex and convoluted world without the mind of Christ. You've given us the mind of Christ through union with him and through your word. And so we pray you'd help us now. So we come to hear your word this morning. We come to think about this topic. Give us the mind of Christ. Holy Spirit, breathe life into the word and help us abide in Christ that we might bear much fruit. Do this for your glory, the praise of your name, 
And do this for the blessing of the nations. Do this for the gladness of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's immigration debate isn't so much a debate as it is a shouting match. We are more likely to find cuss words and racial slurs in immigration conversation than we are to find statistics and data. That's how far the conversation has fallen. Our country once had a unifying mythology around immigration. We proudly boasted that we are a country of what? Immigrants. We're proud of the words from the poet Emma Lazarus from her poem, The New Colossus, which is, the, the, the sort of, is on a plaque in the Statue of Liberty. You know those famous words? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Many of us would have learned that in our civics courses in middle school or high school. But nowadays, we seem to have forgotten that those lines actually occur in a context, and the lines around them are even more powerful. For example, it says this, Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp. In other words, you can have all of your boasting of your greatness. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips, Then those words, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. But she doesn't stop there. She says, the wretched refuse of teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. But now we hear competing narratives. Much is made of the association between immigrants and crime. Or we regularly hear of immigrants taking jobs from low-income persons and communities. Many immigrants themselves raise their voices to tell a story from their own perspective, to describe their experiences attempting to move into the United States. They tell us of long waiting periods, of confusing red tape, of living every day on eggshells, looking over your shoulder in fear of deportation, and of exploitation by crooked business owners. And then from time to time, we hear those old voices again, the voices of the old mythology. For example, Forbes magazine a couple years ago um, wrote a story about the American dream still being alive. And they told us about all these sort of wealthy persons who have risen to be titans in tech and industry and business who were immigrants who came to the country with nothing. In one section of their article, they include this paragraph. According to the Kauffman Foundation, immigrants are nearly twice as likely to start a new business than native-born Americans. The Partnership for a New American Economy, a nonpartisan group formed by uh, Rupert Murdoch and Michael Bloomberg, reports that immigrants started 28% of all new businesses in the U.S. in 2011. Immigrants employ one of every 10 American workers in privately owned businesses, And immigrants generate $775 billion in revenue. I say some of these businesses are small, of course, like restaurants and auto repair shops, but others aren't. The National Foundation for American Policy, a nonpartisan research group, says that 44 of the 87 American tech companies valued at a billion dollars or more were founded by immigrants, many of whom 
now rank among the richest people in America. With all these competing voices and messages, uh, the well-meaning Christian is left wondering what to think. There's a lot of hard thinking to do. Who should we believe? Whose voice ought we to center? Which narrative is the one to act on? Or is it some combination of them all? And if a combination, how do we figure out what's just? Well, that brings us to our text this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 22. And as we look at this text this morning, I want to hang our thinking on sort of three points. This is our outline, or three sections. First point is this. We get from verses 12 to 15. Love God because God first loved you. Love God because God first loved you. The second point is similar. Love immigrants because God loves immigrants. Love immigrants because God loves immigrants, verses 16 to 22. And then the third point really isn't a point. It's just where I'm going to make some applications. Right? So we're going to make some applications. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 22. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your father's and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heavens. This, of course, is Moses addressing Israel after the Exodus. The book of Deuteronomy is the, the giving of the law again. It's, it's regarded by many as a, a long sermon, which Moses is re minding the people of Israel what God has done for them in bringing them out of bondage in Egypt and is setting before Israel the requirements of God, how they are to live as God's people, what that looks like and feels like and acts like. 
And so we come to this section here. It's almost a, a summary, really, of the book, if you like, but it's, it's certainly a summary of God's expectation of his people. And the first thing that we see here in verses 12 to 15 is, is this, that we are to love God because God first loved us. We see it there in the question that's asked in verse 12 and 13. Uh, Moses says there, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What does God demand of his people? And then he kind of answers the question, really, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. In a word, God calls his people to love him. And in a real sense, the most fundamental sin of all is the failure to love God as he deserves. All the other sins that come about in the world are, are really sins that are echoing this fundamental fault in human nature, that we don't love God as we ought to love God. That we don't prize him, we don't enjoy him, we don't delight in him, we don't put him first, we don't treasure him, we don't, as the word says here, fear or reverence him. We don't walk or, or behave in, in a way that honors him. We don't, we don't have affection for him as we ought. We don't serve him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. We don't keep his commandments and statutes. Because of this fundamental defect that occurs in the fall of humanity into sin, where the heart of love of which man was originally created is broken in a thousand pieces in disobedience to God. And so God tells his people very clearly, love me. And this is what it looks like. You fear me or you reverence me. You have a, a deep respect for me. And you walk in all of my ways. You are my people, so you, you behave like me. I'm your father, and so you bear a family resemblance. And you do that not grudgingly, but you do that with a glad heart. You do that with a heart whose affection is directed toward God. And notice, you do it with all that you are. All of your heart, all of your strength, all of your love. And you hear Jesus echoing this in the Gospels, don't you? It says the greatest commandments is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul all our strength, and that you keep my commandments. That's what love looks like. Those words often occur together in Deuteronomy and throughout the Scripture. Fear, walk, love, serve, obey. So love for God is not mere sentimentality. Love for God cannot be reduced to warm, fuzzy feelings that we sometimes get when we sing our favorite song. I don't mean to disregard that, but that's not what God is after. He's after something more. He's after all of us submitted to him. Amen. And that's love. Now notice at the end of verse 13, Moses says there that what God requires of us is for our good. God commands us 
in order to bless us. All God's commands are are intended to bless all God's people. He he does not command us to burden us, but, but God calls us to love us, to love him to unburden us. It is submission to his command. It is an embrace of his way. It is following his way that actually removes the burden of sin. It removes the yoke of slavery. It is what lightens the Christian's face and heart. Disobedience is the slavery. Disobedience is the burden. Disobedience is the brokenness that comes upon us, but obedience is the healing. Obedience is the freeing. Obedience is the enlightening. Obedience is the goodness that we experience with God. And so John says in 1 John 5, 3 in the New Testament now, his commandments are not burdensome because his word gives life. God calls us to love him in this text There's something we want to get right here. He doesn't call us to love him so that we might earn his love. He calls us to love him because he's already given us his love. Our love for him is a response to his love for us. That's what we see in verses 14 and 15. Look there with me. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and earth, or heaven and the heaven of heavens, excuse me, the earth that with all that is in it. Yet the Lord sets his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. That's a marvelous passage. See what verse 14 says. That God owns everything. Not just heaven, but heaven of heavens. And not just earth, but everything in it. So we serve a God who is creator and ruler and owner of everything. And by implication, he could enjoy whatever he wants. He could set his heart on beautiful sunsets. He could set his heart on roaring seas. He could set his heart on the, on the beauty of a peacock and a parrot. He could set his heart on the mighty nations of this ancient day. He could have said, I'm going to love Egypt because Egypt is mighty in chariots and horses. Or I'm going to love Assyria because Assyria is fierce in battle. So when you come to verse 15, and verse 15 begins with yet, we're meant to stand in awe of this fact. The God who owns everything chose to love us. Of all the things he owned. Of all the things he could delight in, of all the things that he could have chosen to to get pleasure from, he chose to set his love on us. In the immediate context, us is Israel, a people fresh out of slavery, 400 years in bondage, leaving Egypt with hardly a thing. Poor, wandering, farming people insignificant in the world economy, insignificant militarily, insignificant in number. God says, you, I choose you to be mine and I will be yours. And before Israel even knew it, God has set his heart on them as his people. And not just Israel, 
We come to the New Testament. We find in the New Testament the, the same teaching. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Paul there in praise says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the formation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What we read of Israel in the Old Testament is true now of God's new covenant people, the church. The church is the true Israel. The church is the, the people of God. And just like God chose Israel for himself to be his chosen people, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 that we, the church, have become a chosen people, a, a royal priesthood, those whom God has loved before the foundation of the world, that we should know his love and in response love him back. And maybe you've forgotten but we were just as insignificant as Israel. Just as poor. Just as broken. Just as without any claim to God's love. Reveling in our sin. Rebelling against God. Not fearing Him. Not walking in His way. Not keeping His commandments. Not serving Him with our heart and our body but exactly the opposite. And the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the Bible says, God demonstrated his love toward us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, Christian, the most basic message this morning is God loves you. Yes, you, Sarah, and Carly. Yes, you, Derek, and Eden, and Jahil, Abby, Precious, Akeem. God set his heart on you, beloved. If you're here this morning, God loves you too. And as I just said, he's proven his love for you. And that even though you, like us, are in your sins and, and angering God because of your sins and deserving of God's judgment because of your sins, we were in the same seat that you're in. But, but just like us, God, God loves you. And, and God has proven his love, as we said a moment ago, in crucifying his son on the cross. And you say, that's a strange way to prove love. Oh, beloved, it's not so strange when you know what's happening on the cross. Because on that cross, when Jesus dies, he is being punished for your sins and mine. The same God who is loving is also holy, and he will not wink at our sin. Either we will give an account for our sin and suffer his judgment, or we will call upon Jesus to suffer in our place. On the cross, in his love, the Father crushed his Son so that you and I, through faith in his Son, might have his love and eternal life. 
And three days later, Christ rose from the grave. The Father raised him from the grave that we might be justified with God, reconciled with God, and we might live forever in God's love. The simplest but most profound message of Christianity is precisely this. God loves sinners and redeems them from sin through faith in his Son. If you have faith, you've already been loved. It was his love that brought you into faith. If you want his love, you only need to repent and put your faith in Christ to experience it. So the first thing that we see in this text is this very simple but profound truth. We love God because he first loved us even though we're nobodies. And there are two applications for us to make about this in order to prepare our hearts to think about immigration. First application is this. We ought to then be a humble people, not a proud people. Knowing God loves us simply because he loves us, and not because we're lovely, should make us humble rather than proud. We had the time we looked back at Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8, because that's where God tells Israel just a couple chapters before, listen, I loved you because I loved you. I didn't choose you because you were mighty among the nations. I didn't choose you because you were great in number. Truthfully, you were insignificant. I loved you just because I wanted to love you. It ought to breed both security and humility before the Lord. But when you think about it long enough, God choosing us, even though we didn't deserve it, that, that should just produce in us gladness and thankfulness and humbleness instead of pride. Gladness because he could have passed us over. Thankfulness because we didn't deserve it. Humbleness because we're nothing apart from him. So this should promote humility rather than pride and it should also promote astonishment rather than entitlement. Again, keep in mind who Moses is addressing. When the text says there in verse 13, you above all people, I think God's just driving home the point. Israel, compare yourself to all the other people groups around you. You, you are without a nation. You're without a government. You're without power. But among all the peoples, I chose you. 400 years enslaved in Egypt, and I chose you oppressed by the strongest military power in the world, and I delivered you. What do you think they're feeling at that moment? I don't think if they are in their right minds, they're feeling entitled. Not feeling like everything should be given to them or like God owes them something. They're probably standing there in some amount of disbelief, astonished that God has freed them and God has loved them. You see, beloved, the love of God for insignificant people is an astonishing thing. And so we're meant to, we're not to try to earn his love, just accept it. We shouldn't fear losing his love, just trust it. We shouldn't try to limit his love, but marvel at it. We shouldn't question his love, but cling to it. And we should pray for others to know and believe in God's love for them 
in Jesus Christ. First point, love God because God loves you. Second point, love immigrants because God loves immigrants. This is what we see in part in verses 16 to 22. The love we have received from God, beloved, is not meant to be bottled up in us, but spread to others. We're not, we're not buckets storing God's love selfishly for ourselves. We, we're hoses spraying God's love onto the people that we meet. And verses 16 to 22 teaches that God, as God's people, we're called to, to love, in this context specifically, the vulnerable, including the sojourners. Look there at verses 16 to 22. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Pay attention to that word sojourners. It's our key word for our topic this morning. It mentions there in the middle of that passage um, in verse 18, sort of the, the poster children in the Bible for vulnerable families. The widows, the orphans, and the sojourners. You see them show up all throughout the scriptures as, as sort of representatives of, of the most vulnerable in society. And sojourners are, are people traveling from one place to another. They're people who left their own homelands to live in another country, a foreign country. It, it could be for work that they have left, or for better life, or for religious reasons, because of war, because of famine, because of marriage. In our parlance, we would call them immigrants or perhaps refugees. These are two forms of, of sojourners among us today. Now, God's command here is really clear. He commands us first to love him in the first few verses. That's what is required of us. But now, notice in verse 17, the Lord your God is, or excuse me, verse, verse 19, is the second command. Love the sojourner, therefore. Love the sojourner. The most basic posture of the Christian heart toward the immigrant, biblically defined, is love. Immigrants, refugees, are to be subjects or objects of our love. Now, one of the things that seems to me glaringly missing in any conversation about what are we going to do with immigration is any comment on love the immigrant. You, you, can, you can sniff out fear. You can sniff out anger. You can sniff, sniff out entitlement and, and self-protection. But you will be hard-pressed in most conversations about immigration to hear anything that sounds like love for them. including among Christians talking about this. 
So what I want us to do is to sort of talk about six ways from this text to grow our love for immigrants. Six ways to grow our love for immigrants. Number one, love for immigrants begins with a circumcised heart. Begins with a circumcised heart. That's what we see in verse 16. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel a sign of their relationship with him. So in, in the same way that today we give and exchange rings, I know y'all were up yes, early yesterday morning uh, watching the, the royal wedding. Um, they gave and exchanged rings and all that. I don't understand all that. Didn't we rebel against England? I mean, you know. <laughs> didn't we rebel against the crowd? I mean, you know, that's a different sermon. Uh, <laughs> but the same way we give rings, and that symbolizes our relationship with, it, with, with our spouses. So God gave Israel the, the sign of circumcision as a sign of Israel's relationship with him. Circumcision, as the text says there in verse 16, is the removal of the male foreskin. It's to be done when the child was eight days old, and it would, it would sort of set them apart from the rest of the nations as belonging to God. But that Old Testament sign was a symbol that was also pointing to a spiritual circumcision. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 Paul picks up this issue of circumcision and he tells us what it was really pointing to. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And Paul says the one who's so circumcised in heart now, well, his praise is not from man, but from God. So the question becomes, as we look at Deuteronomy 10 and think about Romans 2, is how do you get a circumcised heart? How do you remove the, the foreskin of the heart? Well, Colossians 2, 11 and 12 teaches this. Paul writes there in Colossians, in him, meaning Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, we get a circumcised heart when we turn from sin and put our faith in Christ. And by that faith, we are united with Christ and we are buried with him, uh, spiritually to speak, and raised with him in newness of life. And the old man of the flesh, the old man of the sin nature is cut off. And the new man and the new heart and the new life that comes from faith in Christ is what we now live. So we need a circumcised heart. And if we are Christians, we should have, re have received one through faith in Christ. And what that looks like in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 10 is no longer being stubborn toward God. It's amazing how often God refers to his people in the Old Testament, especially as stiff-necked stubborn. They're like mules who won't go no matter how hard you kick them or beat them. They're like dogs you see sometimes. People, masters walking their dog. You want the dog walking them, right? Master pulling, the dog won't move and pull back this way against the leash. We can be that way spiritually in our disobedience to God. 
And so the circumcised heart is a heart, first of all, of faith in God through Jesus Christ. But second of all, that, that new heart should be a heart that, that submits to Christ, that willingly takes his yoke upon our necks and, and goes wherever he turns us. Not in resistance to God's word, but in submission to it. Now, just a quick word of application here. Because I think one of the strongest idols in the Christian church is our, our political and partisan affiliation. And sometimes, because of our political and partisan affiliations, we try every way we can to explain the word, the word of God away. And we see something like, love the sojourner, love the immigrant. And we instantly start saying, well, it can't mean that. Can't mean that. Okay, it means that, but what about this, and what about that, and what about that? And all the way on the left, all the way on the right, all the way in the middle, we start qualifying God's word by our sort of partisan idols. Beloved, that's stubbornness. That's stiff-neckedness. That's protecting our idol rather than smashing it by God's word. We will never make progress on this issue and so many like it if God's people are stubborn and refuse a circumcised heart. So if we want to grow in love for immigrants, we have to start here. This is the proper response to knowing that God has first loved you. We return love to him and we cease our stubbornness. Now here's the second thing. Love for immigrants remembers what God himself is like. We want to grow in our love for immigrants. We have to remember what God is like. That's what we see in verses 17 and 18. No, 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 no mistake that God puts this in here. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now, there's a lot of titles there for God, a lot of his attributes. But we learn all this about God when we're little children, learning to pray, don't we? You remember the first prayer you probably prayed over your meal? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Verse 17a, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. God is great. Verse 17, who is not partial and takes no bribe, God is good. And we could just as well go on, God is great, God is good, let us praise him for his love. That's what we see in verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God's love and his justice go together. I don't often quote him, but I will this morning. I love it when Cornel West says this. Justice is love when it goes public. Justice is love when it goes public. Or to quote Dr. King, I, I do love this from the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott speech. Dr. King says this, justice is love correcting everything that rebels against love. Justice is what love does when other people aren't acting loving. Verse 17 tells us that 
describes God's justice by saying he is not partial and takes no bribe. That's God's internal moral compass. He doesn't play favorites. He cannot be bought. He takes no bribe. He is the supreme justice. And that's because he is God and he is internally upright. And verse 18 describes God's justice by telling us how God acts in the world. He executes there. He executes. He executes. He doesn't just talk about it. He does it. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Whatever is right in the cause of the fatherless and the widow and the vulnerable, God does it. And he loves the sojourner. Notice now, very practically, giving him food and clothing. Love is not reduced to sentimentality. Love is expressed practically. And the main way that God gives the sojourner food and clothing is not by manna from heaven and supernaturally as in the exodus and in the wilderness keeping their clothes from wearing out for 40 years. He can do that. The ordinary way in which God gives food and clothing to the immigrant is through his people. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that a Christian's thinking on immigration must be theological first, not political. Our position cannot be defined fundamentally by our political parties or our fears or anything else. Our immigration position, our approach to immigration must be defined by what God is like. His greatness, His goodness, His love and justice. So we ought to approach this conversation like all other justice conversations centered on God and his character. Which brings us to a third thing. Love for immigrants then goes on to imitate God's love for immigrants. That's what we see in verse 19. Love the sojourner therefore. Therefore lets us know that that's the application of what what the writer has just said. The writer has just told us that God loves the sojourner and gives clothing and food to the sojourner. So therefore, those who are God's people are called now to imitate him in loving him the same way. I love the way Hannah Moore puts this, or Hannah Anderson, excuse me. We made reference to this quote earlier in the series from her book Made for More helps us here. She's talking about our being made in God's image, and she's talking about reflecting that, and and I think what she says applies to this text. She says, the paradigm is simple. God intends to reflect his identity through your identity. What he is, you will become. He is holy. You must be holy. He loves, so you must love. He forgives, so you must forgive. And because he is glorious, you must be glorified as well. God intends to reflect his identity through the identity of his people. And he tells us very explicitly that he loves the sojourner. And he doesn't leave us to guess to the application. Therefore, his people, our identity, must be one of loving God the sojourner. So we need to think on what God is like and imitate God's love for the immigrant. I think of a couple of members here who would not wish to be named. I think they're 
genuinely humble, who befriended an immigrant man who was attending here for a season and, and got to know some of his needs. In this case, he was a, a political refugee seeking asylum in the country. And one of his practical needs was for a car. So they put some of their resources together to help the man get a car so he would be able to find employment and continue in his immigration process. That's what I think is in mind here, getting very practical and specific in caring for the practical needs of, of our immigrant neighbors, and in this case, our, our immigrant brothers and sisters in the church. So clothing and food stand in symbolically for practical needs. Life needs, things people need to be able to survive. And maybe that should rest fairly heavily in our thinking in these debates. That when we're talking about immigrants, a great many of them are people trying to survive. It's not an exaggeration. Whether they are Syrian refugees fleeing the war of that country, whether they are fleeing famine in their country, um, a, a great many are quite literally trying to survive. God loves them practically. We should imitate him. Which brings us to number four. Love for immigrants builds on empathy. It builds on empathy. You see that in the second half of verse 19? So the first part says, love the, the sojourner, therefore, then it says, for, this is the reason, you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. One of the greatest hindrances to love for our immigrant neighbors is a lack of empathy. And, and where empathy is low, beloved, love will be low. And where empathy is high, love will be high. Now, empathy may be tough for people who have not been sojourners. So we have to circumcise our hearts of the indifference that comes from not having directly experienced what someone else's experience. In other words, we have, to, we have to sort of not be stubborn when it comes to putting ourselves in the shoes of other people. And all we really need to do to build empathy is one of two things. Remember the experiences that we share with others. The text says here, you were sojourners. Or B, imagine ourselves in other people's shoes. Beloved, a good deal of the Christian faith requires that we have active imaginations. Empathy and sympathy and love require imagination so that we can identify with people that we are not like. And this is a commandment from Christ for you. Remember in the Gospels, the Lord says, listen, if you just love people who are like you, what good is that? Even the tax collectors do that. And then he goes on to say, no, you, you will know that you have a God kind of love when you are loving people not like you, even your enemies. So the love that God has in view here is really quite expansive and, and, and boundary crossing. And, and for it to be effective, we've got to imagine some things. We've got to identify with some things that are not natural to us. If, for example, we have not been immigrants. So we have to stop and consider the stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who in this room are literally immigrants, who are first or maybe second generation immigrants. And we have to center the immigrant experience in our understanding of this issue. 
And we have to center their experience because God has very clearly called us to love them. And we won't love them if we don't understand them, if we don't hear from them, if we don't give them sort of center space for us to work through questions of, of empathy and understanding. So we have to think about Carl Richards. Carl is Hmong. I didn't know it until she told me some time back that Hmong people literally have no home country of their own. Since then, a whole community and its experience has opened up for me as she has shared just a little bit about what it means for her to be Hmong. And I know we love Ka. And I know we probably don't think much about the fact that Ka is Hmong. But we ought to. That particularity gives us window into her life, her thoughts, her heart and experience, and into that whole community through her. Or we have to think about Miss Icard, who's Haitian. Well, just for example, when public comments are made about Haitian immigrants, those comments, beloved, are about our sister. Or public comments are made, disparaging comments are made about Nigerian immigrants. You know how many Nigerian members we have in our family? That's about us, beloved. It's about our family. There shouldn't be to us a comment made about some faceless, nondescript people somewhere out there. If we're growing in empathy, we want to know something about Babatunde and Bimi and their immigration story and the long years they spent apart as husband and wife until he could get his wife here together with him in this country. That's your brother and sister. My brother and sister. Or, or we have to imagine what it's like for Leela Bosson, Tim's wife, a Hungarian woman, trying to immigrate to be with her husband, separated literally by this immigration process. I think she wants to be with Tim. Amen. I know he wants to be with her. So you see, beloved, to grow in empathy, we have to think harder than we do about the lives of our brothers and sisters and the lives of the immigrant communities that are in question. And I'll tell you what, we also have to think harder about. We have to think harder about 1 Peter 2.11 because the New Testament says about the church, that we are sojourners and exiles. And it seems to me that most of us don't feel and live like sojourners and exiles. We seem right at home in the world. We seem right at home in the country. We act like this is the promised land when really we should be looking to a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, wherein is righteousness. So if our identity as Christians isn't fundamentally, I'm a sojourner, I'm an exile, I'm passing through, it's no surprise then that we may have difficulty empathizing with those who are more literally sojourners and exiles. But we should be the people most quickly empathetic to that category of citizenry because that's who we are in the world. So we want to grow in empathy in order to love immigrants. Number five, we have to keep in mind also that love for immigrants is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. 
again, what we're talking about here is not primarily for the Christian a political act or political calculus. Like everything in the Christian life, love for immigrants is most fundamentally something we offer to God as, as, as an act of worship, as an act of praise. We do it because of who God is and because he calls us to respect and to serve him. So we see the words of verse 20 and 21. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. In some ways, that's just a bookend to what we saw in the first two verses, 12 and 13. Right? And whenever you see the same idea sort of repeated at the beginning and the end of a paragraph, in some ways it's letting you know that everything between those, those ideas is, is meant to sort of be part of those ideas. So if this whole paragraph is about the worship of God, then in the beginning and the end, then we're meant to understand that how we care for the widows and the orphans and the sojourners is actually part of our worship. It's part of our service to God. It's part of how we please him. Notice there, verse 21. I love this sentence. He is your praise. Beloved, is God your praise? Is the Lord the object of your celebration? Do you boast in Christ and nothing else? See, for the Christian, we must be careful that immigration discussions don't reveal that our country is our praise. We must be careful that America is not our boast. See, there's a right way to love your country and to be patriotic, and we should be. In fact, there are multiple ways to be patriotic, from the celebratory to the critical. But on this issue, our God commands us to remember that He is our praise. He is our worship, and that's freeing. That's freeing, because if God is our praise, then we're not in the clutches of our country. If God is our praise, then we're not in the clutches of our fear. If God is our praise, then we're not in the clutches of our political philosophy or political party. If God is our praise, then we are freed up to give ourselves to him fully without regard to country or party. He is your praise. Last thing. To grow in love for immigrants, we want to share our blessings. That's what we see in verse 22. Moses comes down and he says, Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. They, they went into Egypt fleeing famine, just 70 people, and then there was a Pharaoh who did not know Moses, and he oppressed the people and enslaved the people. And for hundreds of years, the people groaned. But for hundreds of years, God was multiplying them. God was growing them. God was making them so vast as a nation that the Pharaoh and the Egyptians got afraid that they were going to be overrun in their own country. That's part of what stirred up Egypt's oppression of Israel. It's too many of them. They're going to take over. They're going to get all the good stuff. Sound familiar? But that multiplication of Israel was God keeping his covenant with them and blessing them even in the hostile environs of Egypt. 
And so now he's delivered them, and he wants them to remember not only their enslavement, but he wants them to remember his blessing upon them. And I think the pastoral application here is that they are meant to share it. I think that because even when God called Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, part of what he says is, I'm going to bless you. Why? So that you would be a blessing to the nations. That's, That's fulfilled supremely in Christ. But I think it's meant, and if we look at the rest of the laws regarding immigrants, it's meant also to be fulfilled practically and penultimately in how Israel engaged other people. So if we read through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21 and other places, you're going to see that God instructs them to welcome the Israelites into the country, to let them participate in their feasts and things of that sort. They're not to be treated like second-class citizens. They're not to be ostracized in that way, but to be included and to share in the blessing of God's people as it spilled over onto other people. That's how we're meant to live. So anything that resembles a a NIMBY attitude, y'all know that word? NIMBY? Not in my backyard? Anything that resembles a NIMBY attitude? It's really out of bounds for people who know that they've been blessed by God and been blessed so that they can be a blessing to others. Anything that resembles a this is my house kind of attitude. I know y'all know that attitude. All y'all got a house that had that attitude. Somebody come over to your house and they try to tell you a little something. You, you, you in your house, you come to my house, tell me that. This is my house. This is my house. Y'all know how we get. <laughs> we get that way about our country. We're Americans. People come over here and tell us how to do anything. This is our house. This is our stolen house. I wonder, I wonder how my native brothers feel about that. I wonder how my native brothers feel like that. It's a stunning thing that people, American citizens, can steal a country and then act like they don't want nobody to come to it. Maybe repentance looks like giving the country back to the natives and applying to our own immigration process. We're meant to share the blessings that God has given to us, beloved. Not be possessive, not be stubborn, not be stingy. God has not been that way with us. And he's left us in the world to be like him with others. So let's bring this down to applications. How do we apply this to our immigration issues and debates? What what does a biblical understanding of justice require of the thoughtful Christian? I want to lay down just three broad principles that are not meant to be sort of passed off as immigration policy, but principles to, for us to abide by as Christians as we think through the particularities of immigration policy if we get involved in that. Here's the first one. Our approach must be driven by love for God and love for the immigrant more than love for self. This is what we've been saying all along. In a very real sense, Deuteronomy 10 has just simply given us what Jesus taught us were the two great commandments of the law. To love God with all of ourselves, and to love our neighbor like ourselves. Love God and love neighbor. You, you might sum up the whole book that way, right? So when I say we should be driven by love for God and love for immigrant more than love for self, I don't mean we don't love ourselves. I mean just as we look out for ourselves, we, we look out for others too. We include their concerns in our concerns. 
We should conceive of a way of legitimately protecting our interests while including the interests of others. This is what the Bible teaches. And we will never have a just immigration policy or a fruitful immigration debate if we only care for ourselves. There's no hope for the country to do that if Christians look like the world in only caring for ourselves. So here's the question on this first application. Ask yourself, does my immigration approach show that I love God and I love my immigrant neighbor as much as or more than I love myself? Does my immigration approach show that I love God and I love my immigrant neighbor as much as or more than I love myself? Second principle for application. Our approach must express love for God and love for neighbor in tangible, practical ways. Again, we've been saying this. I'm just driving it home. Biblical love is not sentimental. Simply saying we love someone is not the Bible standard for love. A whole lot of folk talk good game. Genuine love acts and provides. So you can write this text down or you can turn there with me. 1 John 3, 16 to 18. 1 John 3, 16 to 18. The Apostle John writes there, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's as applicable to relationships inside the household of God as it is to relationships on topics like immigration that are both inside and outside the household of God. Let us love in deed and in truth. So here's the question here for this application for you to think about, maybe talk about over lunch. Does my love for immigrants show itself in laying down my life and sharing my goods? Does my love for immigrants show itself in laying down my life and sharing my goods? Or, to put it another way, how will I show tangible love to my literal neighbor, my brother or sister in the church, and other citizens as I represent Christ in the world? How am I practically going to show that love in the church and beyond. Third principle. Our approach must never be motivated by race, ethnicity, or class. Our approach must never be motivated by race or ethnicity or class. I'm sad this has to be said, but it does. By definition, a sojourner or an immigrant is someone from a different ethnic, cultural, national, or language background from your own. That's what makes them an immigrant. When Israel was the sojourner, none of them were wealthy. They were all farmers and slaves. So in this text, Deuteronomy 10, when God calls us to love the sojourner, he, in effect, calls us to love the nations that are not like us and who are often very poor. 
That call to love cuts against prejudice and bigotry and racism and classism and xenophobia. It cuts those things off at the knees. So Christians can never with integrity support immigration approaches that speak of S-hole countries and favor affluent Scandinavian people. That's the kind of partiality the Bible explicitly condemns in places like James 2. It is not Christian. For the Christian, it is sin to speak and act in ways that deny people are made in the image and likeness of God. It's not even in keeping with what's on that plaque in the Statue of Liberty. You're tired, you're poor, you're huddled masses, your worthless refuse, the teeming shore. And truthfully, beloved, much of our country's immigration law was intentionally built with racial preferences and prejudices in mind. Our brother Nick Rodriguez helped me learn this a couple of weeks back. It ran down the sort of history of immigration policy. I'm going to do it for you now if you will follow along real quick. The 1790 Naturalization Act limited citizenship to white people. For the next century, immigration policy is tinkered with a little bit, but it's mostly about restricting criminals or dangerous people from from immigrating. So it's still only sort of as a class admitting white people as citizens. Until 1870, shortly after the Civil War, The act is amended to allow African Americans to naturalize as citizens. I suppose I should be thankful I'm a little bit insulted. (laughs) Naturalized? We've been here by generations by that point, building this country. (laughs) 1875. You get the Asian Act of Exclusion. Or the Asian Exclusion Act. And then in 1882, you get the Chinese Exclusion Act, which basically prohibited any people of Asian descent from immigrating. That rocked me. I didn't know that. That rocked me. That's the law up until 1921 when you get the Emergency Quota Act, which sets the paradigm for our our current system. That act is the the first ever to set quotas uh, for immigration based on national origin. I think it limited to 375,000 people a year coming into the country. Now, the important thing about those quotas is that they're tied to the current representation in the population at that time, which means what? It keeps the racial makeup of the country the same. So you get to 1951, 30 years later, the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is still the controlling legislation today. It's been amended several times. But finally, in 1951, you get the, the abolishing of race as a consideration in immigration policy. And you get the quotas updated a little bit. I think it's about a million a year that are allowed to come into the country. But again, it's still based on the 1920 census, and it's still favored immigrants from Europe. So just pause and think about that for a second. The first century and a half of our history as a country, the borders were basically open to people of of Caucasian descent and later African descent. And this was done quite intentionally and excluded people of of Latin descent, excluded people of, of Asian descent, 
The policies eventually put in quotas, but that placed caps on ethnicities. So America's white majority was essentially built and maintained through this immigration approach. Which means we must be careful if ever we think of the United States as, quote, a white country. That's problematic in lots of ways. That's not a natural occurrence. We must be careful about ever thinking immigration policy should maintain a white majority. So we need to be suspicious of the language of our country. Who's the our? Who are we preserving? Who gets to be an American? On what basis? And especially how do we think about that as Christians, not as political hacks or what have you. This is a fraught issue. 1965 Immigration Act puts in place the system we have today. Again, eliminates national origins quota system, but maintains the idea of caps. Now more categories for preference. It's been revised a few times. But our system is still fundamentally broken. The Bible doesn't give us an answer to what that system should be in detail. It does give us as Christian people sufficient instruction to live in a way that's pleasing before God to abide by some principles that are consistent with who God is and how God acts in the world. And so the question on this third application is very simply this. Am I showing 11 concerns for immigrants of every national, ethnic, and cultural background? Or can I detect the sin of partiality in my approach? Am I showing a loving concern for immigrants of every national, ethnic, and cultural background? Or can I detect the sin of partiality in my own heart. So we should conclude. We've really only scratched the surface here. As I said, there are a great many details that would need to be worked out in public policy solutions. I don't pretend to be an immigration expert. I'm just teaching you what the Bible says. But at least at the personal level, I hope our minds and hearts are informed by this very clear call from God's Word to love the immigrant the way God loves the immigrant. And I want to put a face to that if people will help me. I don't cause anyone any embarrassment. But just so this isn't abstract for us, and we know that this is family business. If you are a first or second generation immigrant, would you just stand for a moment, wherever you are? First, second generation immigrants. Beloved, these are our brothers and sisters. You may be seated. These are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. They're not some faceless, nameless, vague people group. They're Christ. And they're ours in Christ. And we want to think about this issue with our brothers and sisters in mind and their families and their communities. So at least at the personal level, our hearts need to be right. And our, non, our minds need to be renewed by the word of God. And then we'll be ready to act in whatever ways God, God, God guides us by his word and by conscience on these complex issues. The lingering question for us to answer is, do you and I love our immigrant neighbors the way God loves them? If so, let's show it in very practical, tangible ways. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you that your word thoroughly equips us for every good work. We thank you that your word is sufficient for us. And that we, Lord, in obedience to your word, we are we're not burdened, but we are set free. And we thank you that in this complex world full of all kinds of voices with all kinds of motives, your voice is clear and your motive is love. And so we pray that you would help us to hear your voice and act with your motive. And we pray that you give us a good conscience before you and before men that we would, Lord, act and serve in such a way as would honor you and would bless the nations. For we are exiles in this world. We are sojourners, pilgrims on our way home. Lord, help us to remember that so that we can help other pilgrims as well. Indeed, help us to remember that so that we can bring other pilgrims with us into that heavenly city, that new Jerusalem, through faith in Christ. Bless this your word to your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.